You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 8th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, papers with the political scientist Brian Klass. Plus, we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Over the Christmas period, too many people that I know were posting pictures of themselves splashing around like hooked mackerel in chilly, choppy seas. And Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, rounds up what we learned this week. We learned that former First Lady Melania Trump is keen to cash in sooner rather than later. Possibly, who knows, in anticipation of that GRU extraction squad finally coming to recover their prime clandestine operative. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Authorities in Kazakhstan have detained the former head of the National Security Committee on suspicion of treason, as security forces appear to have reclaimed the streets of the main city. Protests raged across the Central Asian country this week. Dozens have died and public buildings have been ransacked and torched in the worst violence experienced by the former Soviet Republic in 30 years of independence. A Georgia judge sentenced Travis McMichael and his father Gregory on Friday to life in prison without the possibility of parole for what he called the chilling 2020 murder of Ahmad Arbery, a black man running through their mostly white neighbourhood in the southern US state. And the United States and Japan on Friday voiced strong concern about China's growing might in unambiguous terms and pledged to work together against attempts to destabilise the region. The comments from the two allies in a joint statement that followed a virtual meeting of their foreign and defence ministers highlight how deepening alarm about China and growing tension over Taiwan have put Japan's security role in focus. I'm Georgina Godwin, and that's your Monocle 24 News. Now I'm going to start off by welcoming Brian Klass, who is the Associate Professor of Global Politics at University College London and author of a brand new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Now, Brian is actually on the line because you've moved out of London, Brian. I have indeed. Where are you talking to us from? Uh, in Hampshire. So I am telling you that you are missing an absolute treat because the Monocle Cafe has just delivered us coffees and a new kind of bun. Do you remember the famous Monocle buns? I do, I do. I am missing out in the wonderful cereal <laughs> bar as well. Uh, so what we have uh, today is the new walnut bun and it's absolutely delicious. So you're just going to have to enjoy it virtually. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll, I'll get it next time I'm in London. Uh, so, Brian, uh, we were just hearing in the headlines there that uh, the situation in Kazakhstan seems to be quietening down. The security forces say that they have taken control. They've um, uh, got rid of one of the top military commanders. Um, but there's a lot more to this. Uh, and I wondered if you would take us through the New York Times story about it. Yeah, so the, the headline in the New York Times is, in Kazakhstan street battles, signs of elites fighting each other. And, and I think what's, what's really murky about this situation right now is it's not totally clear to journalists on the ground, to people involved in the protests, 
or to people engaging in geopolitics, who actually is fighting who and what the stakes are in, in every case, because this started as uh, a fuel protest, ostensibly. And as soon as, as is often the case in authoritarian breakdown, as soon as the sort of mask was off and the idea was, okay, we can actually rise up against this regime, all of a sudden, these other groups have swarmed in and factions within the government that might have been suppressed are starting to fight for power and jockey for position. So you have internal elite dynamics that are fighting each other where you know people are trying to figure out who's going to be in charge of Kazakhstan when all the dust settles. And then there's also Russian troops on the ground. China is interested in influence here. The U.S. is making statements. Uh, and then, of course, you have the ordinary Kazakh people who are just upset about horrendous inequality in a resource-rich country. And so I think that the, over, the overwhelming gist of this story is we don't know. We don't understand exactly what's happening, and it's a very quickly developing situation. I mean, it's some of the worst violence that's been seen in this country since, you know, in, in the last 30 years. It is, and I think this is one of the things, again, that's also uh, quite murky because there's been, you know, there's been videos circulating on social media of gunfire in the capital, uh, and in the largest city, Almaty. And I, and I think that this is one of these things where over time, uh, it's going to become clear exactly who's shooting. But there's, as I say, lots of different factions and groups. And it's not, it's not uh, a, a well-understood story at the moment. What I do think is well-understood is that this is a major pivot point in Kazakh history where you know, either there's going to be a sustained level of, of violence or there will be a crackdown in which there's the potential for a, cons- a further consolidation of power of an already authoritarian regime with the support of Russia. And so I don't, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to look into the crystal ball and know what's going to happen, but it's a, it's a quickly changing situation with a significant, you know, risk factor involved in it because it's a huge, huge country in a hugely geostrategically important region. Uh, just to give us a, a sense of its size, I mean, it's basically the size of Western Europe. Uh, and it only has 19 million people. So it's very sparsely populated, but a huge territory to control uh, sandwiched between Russia and China. Mm, absolutely. And the British papers today are reporting that the new head of the armed forces here in the UK has said that Russia could potentially stop internet communications throughout the world. They could cut undersea cables. So, I mean, spark points like this have potentially global repercussions. Yeah, and I, you know, already in Kazakhstan, there's been reports of internet outages and and people being taken offline, and this often happens in authoritarian regimes uh, when they are facing existential crises. So, you know, I think this is going to be something that becomes part of the new normal of the autocratic playbook. Whether it spills over into more uh, geopolitical implications with undersea cables and so on, uh, it hasn't yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've we've built in lots of vulnerability points into critical infrastructure around the world. And so at some point, something's going to go wrong. Yeah. Print out your contacts is my advice. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, please stay with us, Brian. We're actually going to join Andrew Muller now, our contributing editor, to assess his week's weird and wonderful news stories. We learned this week that at least on early form, 2022 may not be the year during which humanity decides as a species that perhaps it should get somewhat less performatively agitated about absolute bullshit. We are indebted for this lesson to France, although any excuse really to play France's national anthem, magisterial banger that it is. Hang on, here's the good bit. Anyway, 
We learned that France had chosen to see in the new year by having an immense and ridiculous row about a flag. A row so immense in its ridiculousness indeed that we feel heartily justified in wheeling out that deeply puerile chorus of stereotypical Gallic indignation that we threw together a while back for reasons which, if we're honest, we no longer recall. Might just have been a slow afternoon. That's the one. The cause of the fracas verging on an outright stramash was as follows. As 2021 drew to an unlamented close, the flag hoisted over the Arc de Triomphe in Paris was not, as it usually is, the red, white and blue of France, but the gold stars on blue of the European Union. We learned, when we looked somewhat wearily into this, that this was by way of announcing the beginning of France's turn to have a lash at the rotating presidency of the EU Council. Within this six-month term, however, falls France's presidential election, and some of those opposed to President Emmanuel Macron extending his stay in the LSE Palace chose to affect umbrage at this apparent treachery. Yes, it really was as silly and as boring as that. Can we get a mashup which somehow suggests La Marseillaise fighting it out with that bit from Beethoven's Ninth that the EU advertises itself with? We could, at this point, faithfully relay the anguished vituperations of Eric Zamor, Marine Le Pen and Valérie Pacresse, maybe even get some of our staff to voice them in mocking fashion, as we often do to tremendous comic effect, or we could just play that thing again. And then recite a complete, comprehensive, alphabetical roll call of every sane French citizen who actually, genuinely cares about any of this. Moving seamlessly along on the subject of things no sane person actually genuinely cares about, we learned that at least one member of the former first family of the United States isn't waiting around to see if Donald Trump is serious about launching another waddle towards the White House. We learned that former First Lady Melania Trump is keen to cash in sooner rather than later, possibly, who knows, in anticipation of that GRU extraction squad finally coming to recover their prime clandestine operative. Hey, well, all right, sir, here we go there, and what are they going to give? Oh, I'm at 25, I'll get 30 now, 500, 500, now, 500, 500, now, 500, behind me. We learned that Lieutenant Colonel Knaus, sorry, Ms. Trump, is flogging off to the highest bidder a surplus item from her wardrobe, specifically the hat she wore when President Emmanuel Macron of France, who appears to be this week's recurring motif, visited Washington, D.C. in 2018. We learned that you, yes, you, can own 
own the, it says here, white, broad-brimmed, high-blocked crown hat designed by Herve Pierre. The bad news is that the bidding starts at $250,000. Settle down. But the good news is that the payment is being taken in a cryptocurrency called Sol, so you might end up getting it for the price of a mid-range bar of soap. We did learn, however, that cheaper options are available, including a watercolour of Miss Trump wearing the hat, or a vaguely animated non-fungible token, whatever that even is, of same. Or, of course, you could stuff all your money into a rucksack and drop it off a bridge. We did learn, in fairness, that, and we quote, a portion of the proceeds of this auction will be given to charity, but we did not learn, even from reading the very small print, precisely what this portion was. <coughs> And we learned that listeners whose New Year's resolutions include a change of careers are being catered to by a research project in Edmonton, at least if the new vocation those listeners have resolved to pursue revolves substantially around wanging tennis balls at coyotes. We learned that the Edmonton Urban Coyote Project, though it sounds like an organisation dedicated to the encouragement of the critters, is in fact the opposite. And we learned that to that end, the EUCP is seeking volunteers to dissuade coyotes from coming to town by chucking sand-filled tennis balls in their direction. We, for one narrator of a whimsical news monologue, are very much looking forward to hearing what our producer comes up with by way of subtly evocative soundtrack. Oh, Jesus. OK. <laughs> What's this do? Top work as always, Christy. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Little old lady got mutilated day last night Werewolves of London again Thank you very much there to our contributing editor, Andrew Muller. And don't forget, Andrew will be back at midday London time with his programme, The Foreign Desk, today looking at nuclear disarmament. Uh, and let's rejoin Brian Class now. Brian, uh, we've been looking at the newspapers and I want to continue now in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, but this is a story that bears some relation to, to events around the rest of the world, particularly here in the UK, where there is the most almighty row going on about the British Prime Minister and various members of the government holding parties during lockdown. And it seems they're not the only ones. Carrie Lam is in a similar position. Yes. So The Guardian has a, a story called uh, Dozens of Hong Kong Officials in COVID Quarantine After Birthday Party. And basically, Hong Kong's government set out guidance to uh, its residents saying, you know, basically take precautions and don't go to any large gatherings because of the Omicron variant. And a senior government official in Hong Kong held a birthday party that has now led to, I believe it's 13 legislators uh, being, or 13 government officials rather, being uh, put into quarantine. And so it's extremely embarrassing for the Hong Kong government and uh, all of this for a 53rd birthday party, which is, uh, you know, drawing some parallels to Boris Johnson's famous Christmas parties that are causing his government all sorts of problems. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Carrie Lam's, it would appear, really very cross about this. She is. Um, and I think this is one of those aspects where, you know, China's COVID policy of, of trying to really suppress the virus in, 
in extreme ways is being brought to the fore. And, you know, I, one of one of my colleagues uh, who works in China, what he said to me about the the pandemic, I thought really rang true, where he said, this has shown two of the you know sort of weaknesses, but also divergent uh, strategies of the two major superpowers. So the the Chinese approach has been to prioritize the collective to such an extreme that individual rights are actually, you know, they're eroded extraordinarily. I mean, you know, people being humiliated and so on for breaking the rules in ways that we would find quite barbaric in the West. Whereas in the US, there's basically no restrictions on individual movement and almost all of the rules that exist are, are non-binding. So individuals can, you know, freely go off and, and infect other people if they do have COVID. There's not really any criminal penalties the same way that they have had in the UK. And so, you know, I think this shows some of the extreme aspects of both of the superpowers, one prioritizing the collective and pandemic response and the other prioritizing the individual, both at the extremes. Just to relate this to a story that's happening in Britain, Dominic Cummings, and we all remember his trip to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight in contravention of, of COVID rules, uh, is now alleging that uh, in addition to the cheese and wine party held in the Downing Street Garden, five days later, there was yet another party. Firstly, what a hypocrite. <laughs> and secondly, uh, do you think that this is, in fact, going to be taken seriously by those that investigating? Well, we haven't seen any evidence of serious consequences for breaches of British government officials so far. Um, and, and what I think is really worrying about this, and this is less so potentially in this stage of the pandemic, because with mass vaccination and the booster campaign going pretty well, uh, we don't have the same sort of you know deaths and, and, and serious disease that we did in earlier waves. But in, in the previous waves, I, I suspect there will be significant research in, in political science in the years to come that looks at how these pivotal moments in which government officials break the rules and don't get held accountable leads to reduced rule following among the British public. Mm. Um, I think that will be a, a subject of public health research to figure out how important is it for the behavior that's being demanded of the populace to be followed by those in charge who are setting the rules. Because I think there were some people who probably wanted to break the rules anyway, to be honest, who used it as a way to justify their behavior and, and, and engage in more egregious violations of the rules. So I think there's a public health angle here as well as a political one, and it'll be interesting to see what the research finds in the coming months and years. Absolutely. Brian, thank you very much. Do stay with us. We're going to join our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, for his weekly column, and then we'll be back to you, Brian. I see no thrill in being deliberately cold, so I'm taken aback by the ever-growing popularity of all-year swimming. It's even rampant at Monocle. Sophie Grove, the editor of Confect, returned to work this week, regaling us with tales of how she'd stripped off several times over the break to dive into brutally icy bodies of water and how it left her feeling invigorated each time. And over the Christmas period, too many people that I know were posting pictures of themselves splashing around like hooked mackerel in chilly, choppy seas. In England, there's always been some inverted snobbery about being warm, central heating decried as somehow a bit too middle class for grand folk. Far better to have an historic pile that's so big and badly insulated that the only heating options are to put on another layer or throw some old unwanted relative on the fire. I hope you don't mind, Ethel. Anyway, after listening to Sophie's sales pitch for cold, I've decided to counter her and launch the warm water swimming movement, which will pack away its towels and goggles every winter 
and reconvene come summer on Greek beaches. Two, we recently stayed with friends who did forewarn us that their home was only warm during the winter if you were within a few metres proximity of the Arga. But they had a good spin on this. I assure you that our house is so bloody draughty that you'll never catch Covid staying with us. And indeed, we didn't. Three. On the tube this week, I spotted a woman engrossed in something on her lap. Being nosy, I looked closer, and there, seated on her skirt, were two guinea pigs, which she was feeding a long stick of celery to. The train rattled through the stations, but the guinea piggies were so blissed out that they were oblivious to all but their salad-waving god. I'm hoping that she ups the game by the next time that I see her and returns with, say, a llama and carrots. Anyway, it made me feel jollier than diving into cold water could ever have done. Men's tennis number one, Novak Djokovic, landing in Australia a few hours ago. Four, Novak's Djokovic was the best newspaper headline of the week. The decision to grant Novak Djokovic a COVID now, vaccination Novak exemption Djokovic, so he can defend... when he arrives in Australia... So the process has been, been very clear and, and we completely understand and empathise with... Absolutely uh, with clear um, that, uh, as has been the case the whole time, um, no-one uh, is or will be receiving special treatment because of who they are or what they have achieved professionally. Five, London has been odd this week. Many companies have delayed returning to their offices because of Omicron, so things have been quiet even for January. On Tuesday, a few of us went for lunch and we were the only people in our favoured spot. But if you are in the business of murder, this would be a very good week to get rid of the body. While it seems that most people in the city just dump their old Christmas trees in the street and then try to pretend it's nothing to do with them, despite there being numerous drop-off points, I might add. Last night, I caught in my headlights a man and a woman carrying what looked to be like a big black body bag across the road, and it was only as I passed them that I saw the tip of a Christmas tree poking out. I don't know if they were a star from a local hospital or morgue getting rid of the seasonal shrubbery, but it beats sticking a tree inside an old duvet to avoid a needle-shedding catastrophe. Six, talking of the dead... A few minutes' walk from my house is A. France and Son, an undertaker's that's been in business since at least 1764. Every Christmas, they fill their window with a miniature winter village scene. People are skating, a dog scampers through the snow, a choir sings. And there, in the midst of all this frivolity, you spot a lingering black hearse. Well, you never know when someone is going to break their neck on the ice, I guess. It's great product placement. Seven, I follow a group that posts old photographs of London, and when you see pictures from 100, even 50 years ago, the streets, the markets, are just teeming with life in a way that we will never see again. Back then, just about every transaction involved you leaving your house, but technology, the ever-changing nature of work, have seen this everyday buzz evaporate, and long ago. And it will only continue. And let's be clear... I'm not championing a return to Victorian Britain, when, for many people, life was the equivalent of perpetual cold-water swimming. But still, it makes you yearn in the depths of winter for London streets to find just a bit more bustle again. Eight. Finally, 
we're looking for a senior editorial assistant to come and work at Monocle. All the details are on our website. It's a job for someone who loves magazines but also likes making things work, for someone with some skill at Excel, but also a way with people. It's based in London and you work alongside me and all the editors. And I assure you, no swimming skills are required, although some stamina and a willingness to dive in wouldn't go amiss. Thank you very much to Andrew. And this is Monocle on Saturday. And still with me is Brian Class, the political scientist who uh, has a brand new book out, which in fact will be the subject uh, of uh, Meet the Writers programme coming up in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, Brian, I want you to explain this weird cult to us. Birds aren't real. Yes, so this is a story that's started to, to make the headlines uh, across the world in the last couple of weeks. And in particular, there's a lot of stories out this morning because the creator of this fake conspiracy theory called Birds Aren't Real went on TV and faked vomiting uh, in a video that went viral. And the, the, the news hosts are totally bewildered by this experience and don't really know what to do. So the way this came about is this guy named Peter McIndoe, who's 23 years old, uh, grew up in a conspiracist household. He was taught that evolution is democratic brainwashing, that Obama was the Antichrist, and so on. And then he went to university and started to you know, read things outside of this group that he had been in with his, his family and so on. And so he wanted to find a way to poke fun at conspiracy theories. So one time when there was a pro-Trump protest, he ripped a sign off a wall and just spontaneously wrote three things uh, three words that came to him, and they were birds aren't real. Now, this conspiracy theory has some basic tenets to it, and it's, of course, satire. Um, unfortunately, some people fall for it. But basically what it says is that since 19, the 1950s, uh, the government has killed 12 billion birds in the United States and replaced them with surveillance drones. So every time that you see a bird, it is actually a government surveillance drone. And the argument goes that they recharge by sitting on power lines, which is why you always see them sitting on these. <laughs> and that's how they electrify themselves to recharge and fly off again and look at you. Uh, what's, what's amazing about this is that it's resonated with a lot of people because the real world of conspiracy theories is so ridiculous that this absurdist parody of them uh, sort of strikes a chord of people saying, have we lost our, our minds? And the birds aren't real movement is supposed to say, yes, we have. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And now, as you say, he's taken it one step further by this vomiting act on television. Yeah, that's right. So I've watched a couple of clips of him. Uh, and, and in the first clip, uh, from a, a previous TV news channel, he's being interviewed about these billboards in which they just say birds aren't real on the top. And the poor news presenter is saying, you don't really believe this. And he says, that's really offensive. You know, and he's, he's, he's in character the whole time. Uh, and it's very funny. In this latest one in, in WGN Chicago, he's on and he takes a sip of his of his coffee and spits it out vomiting and says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm really nervous. And then the, the news hosts are, are you know very concerned about him of course and what they don't realize is that he's creating a viral moment that is going to be seen by millions of people around the world and lead lots of them to birdsaren'treal.com and i mean there's really apart from poking fun no purpose to it he's not bringing them there for financial gain or or anything really no, as far as I can tell, I mean, they do have some financial support that allows him to have this as his full-time job. And he actually drives around in a, in a white van that says birds aren't real on the side. Quote, every bird you see is a government surveillance drone and pigeons are liars, wake up. Uh, 
So he he drives around in this van and he's got these billboards. And I think that's what he's using the money that he's raising for. I don't get the impression that he's getting rich off this. And, you know, what is amazing is you have these videos of him trying to explain this to people in like Walmart parking lots. And some of these people are nodding along and saying, wow, I'd never realized. And and at some point, the satire just becomes so depressing uh, that that you have to wonder if he's actually doing a little bit of harm with convincing some of these people that birds are fake government surveillance drones. Extraordinary stuff. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. That's Brian Class, And that's all we have uh, for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Uh, Many thanks to the Monocle Cafe and Will Ross in particular for our wonderful delivery of uh, coffees and buns. And if you are in the Chilton Street area, why don't you pop down? Because uh, it's a really lovely atmosphere. You can listen to Monocle 24 as you sip your coffee and nibble on your bun. (laughs) And of course, we're all in and out of the cafe all day long. Uh, Can't keep away. Um, Thanks very much to everybody, including our studio engineer Nora Hull and our producer Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week.